We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, and I am Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Shortly, Elliot, James and Paul will be discussing their 3-3 draw at Anfield. This one still hurts, folks. Even a few days later, I'm, I'm in pain still from Joe Allen, of all people. Normally, a point at Anfield is a good result, especially after the way they started the match. Uh, they came out all guns blazing, found it really difficult to get into the game, didn't look very good defensively, but we came back. We came back twice and uh, we took the lead. Everything was going swimmingly. We improved as the game went on. You know, Mr. Ozil started to pull the strings. Uh, Oliver Giroud obviously had a magnificent game. Joel Campbell, wow, improving all the time. At that point there, if you can just hold on, it will just give the player so much confidence. But it's gone now. It's done. It feels a bit like we're, we're at a crossroads now. Maybe this is going a bit over the top here, but it just feels like if we can beat Stoke on Sunday... A point at Anfield isn't so bad, you know. Four points from Anfield and Britannia. It's pretty good. But if we don't beat Stoke, then I can't help but feel we're going to rue conceding that late goal. But anyway, still a long season to go. Uh, we're going to have disappointments from now to the end. Can't go winning all our games, so we're going to have to drop points somewhere. Uh, we just have to hope Man City keep dropping points as well and we can get our players back, which we seem to be doing now. We've signed Mohamed Elneny. We've got Alexis back in the squad for Sunday. So hopefully a bit of rotation there maybe and improve and start winning some tough away games. A lot of tough away games coming up. So fingers crossed with all that. Yeah, enjoy the podcast and I'll be back after Stoke. Hopefully with three points under our belts. 
Joel Campbell shines, El Nenny signs, and we opine. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We are going to be breaking down the fantastic slash heartbreaking result that was the 3-3 at Anfield with two exceptional, intelligent, erudite, sophisticated, and generally great guys. Uh, the first of which is James. Uh, it's always a pleasure when he's on the podcast because we can really sink into a deep, hateful argument. Um, you can find James on Twitter at GoonerFanatic49. Welcome back, James. Hello. Hello. Okay. Uh, the other <laughs> is Paul. We only have him on for his woohoo. Everything else is basically a waste of time. And to find out how many times he watched the match, you can find James on Twitter at PausingInMyPants. Hey, Paul. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. And I am going to be the one eating all the crow as Giroud bags a brace and scored a glorious solo effort in the match. But we'll get to all that. Um... There's a lot of ways we could go talking about this match, you guys. We could talk about you know, the, the fight and character that we showed clawing back from a deficit to take the lead and ultimately holding on for a point. We could talk about the heartbreak of losing the point. Um, and we could talk about the, the sensational efforts of guys like Joel Campbell and Olivier Giroud who really shine. But I think the first thing I want to do is just talk about the early stages of the match, the first 30 minutes, and the degree to which Liverpool dominated, and the problem that is our midfield. If you find an Arsenal midfield, by the way, please report it to Highbury House um, as it has gone missing. Aaron Ramsey scored a goal, great attacking form, but the Ramsey-Flamini partnership as a two-man central midfield pairing is is really proving to be sort of organized chaos at best, and, and maybe just an absentee midfield at worst. So I'll start with you, James. Um, you know, I, I think individually there's a lot to like about Ramsey's game, obviously. But, you know, even as Wenger acknowledged a few weeks ago, he has a more buccaneering approach than like a Santi Cazorla. And while we were all panicked about Coughlin being out and what it would mean having to rely on guys like Flamini, I'm not sure even Coughlin could fill the space that Ramsey leaves him behind. For those first 30 minutes, how concerned were you and how concerned you, do you continue to be with really the lack of control and, and discipline in midfield and how that impacts us, not just in this game, but going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a big concern at in especially this type of game away from home against uh, a highly energised, uh, pressing Liverpool side, whose midfield was also actually, frankly, a, a little bit the same. But um, I hear echoes in the background of... Uh, yeah, from Mr. Silman regarding the uh, uh, the basketball esque dynamic of uh, <laughs> uh, of the game that ensues, but um, I mean the combination of the two, and in particular, I mean even as you say, you, you wonder if given with Özil and Ramsey both on the pitch, even with a um, with the absolute antithesis to that of uh, of a Coquelin, whether how much that even plugs that gap um, in in these types of games. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly very haphazard. Uh, it's it, it's somewhat exciting to watch. It's some somewhat harrowing to watch. Um, it certainly keeps you on your toes. That being said, I think if you look at it from a bigger picture, I mean, if you just assess the fact that uh, I think in something like seven games together, we are that we've come out with five wins, a draw, and a loss, which I'm not suggesting actually is is indicative of the fact that it's a partnership that works, but it's actually. It's a partnership that has been good enough um, to get us through this phase to the top of the league. Um, and I think it's one that we almost don't have to analyse too much because I don't think it's something we're going to really be seeing now too much of with El Nene and, to a certain degree, Arteta back. 
but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it it did certainly create a game in which we we seemed to come in and out of having control, and for the most part, didn't seem to have that much control over over the match. Yeah, and I, I think the the issue you run into obviously is that. Ramsey does add so much to the side and so much attacking intent, which especially when you're without players like, you know, uh, an Alexis Sanchez, you need to find goals and, and attacking options somewhere else. And I do think that one player that really thrives on having Ramsey in central midfield is Olivier Giroud because his deeper runs create space that Giroud wouldn't other necessarily otherwise have. And sometimes he uh, executes his flicks and his layoffs uh, more effectively with with Ramsey inside, and sometimes it just creates that room for him to create goals like like the second that he scored against Liverpool. But Paul, I mean, what what would you say about Ramsey's performance overall, and and the sure. impact he's having on sort of our lack of control as it manifested itself against Liverpool? Well, I like the term buccaneer because you could imagine one of those pirate uh, mo- old style pirate movies with him been on the first rope swinging to the other ship. As they man it, I mean, um, I guess I I tried to put a tweet together, but I couldn't couldn't find a, a nice enough phrasing for it, which basically asked, "Can Flamini and Ramsey both play well while Flamini Ramsey hyphenated sucks?" Um, because I see what you mean. Yeah, the individual individually, neither of them did anything particularly poorly, but the dynamic of how they play together doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could criticize Flamini for sure. I think on was it the second goal, um, where uh, he definitely spills the ball in a really dangerous position, and then it pops back to Mertesacker, who could have done a better job clearing it. But uh, at the same time, they're just there just wasn't the cover in front of the back four. So he definitely made a mistake at that point. I thought overall, because I, I think our concern would be not that they scored two goals. It was the, thir- as you said, the 30 minutes that surrounds it. I mean, we'd be discussing the two goals if the 30 minutes had been great, but it was the, the 20 or 30 minutes, two two goals that were like daggers through the heart. But the, it was one more team that came out all guns firing to press us where we have not done well and the, you know I had a big debate with Michael Kishani yesterday on Twitter uh, the quitter wanted to stop after about half an hour I was still going strong but uh, <laughs> you know we were those are always the most fun days on Twitter when you're just arguing back and forth for yeah hours. exactly I think he got frustrated because it was one of those you know where was it reading on you know I quoted our Bayern result he quoted their you, Bayern, you know the BVB. good thing Paul yeah when, when when you have arguments on Twitter the good thing is usually you really wind up changing someone else's opinion yeah. and at the end of the <laughs> argument they say wow I never saw it that way thank you for enlightening me yeah it, it was a lovely lovely moment and that's really <laughs> I, I think I moved my Kishani's opinion because I know mine didn't move one jot. So you win. Moving on. Yeah. So what you get to is a series of these games, the Spurs games, etc., where you can debate have we ever really been particularly good against the press over the last few years? Uh, And even thinking back to the glory days of Arteta Ramsey, who I think we all like as a pairing, and I think that was kind of Michael's go-to. You know, it, there was a time when you didn't really have to press us. You just had to press Arteta, and we kind of broke down. Um, yep. And it wasn't re- – I don't think any of us think Arteta isn't good on the ball or good in tight situations or can't even but, – But wasn't a lot of that because at the time his partner was 
Aaron Ramsey. And if you pressed Arteta, Ramsey was usually making those forward runs or isn't as much, you know, oriented towards occupying those those spaces in midfield where he provides his partner an outlet the way Santi Cazorla is so good at doing. Yeah, that's where I was going with it. I mean, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that was very much my view. It's not Art. It wasn't Arteta. I mean, he can he can play his way out of a hole as good as anybody, as good as Cazorla can. And it's not that Ramsey's terrible. It's it, you know, you. I think you need to be technically very secure, and he's not terrible at that. It's but it's not his super strength. You have to be able to dribble like a Cazorla. And to some degree in Arteta. I mean, both of those guys are guys that if you tackle them, they probably still come away with the ball, you know, three out of four times. If you get to Arteta, he probably still ends up with the ball on the end of his foot. The same with Cazorla. Um, They're very good in those tight spots and playing out of them. Jack's good at that. Um, But we, Arsenal, have never really had a good pairing. I mean, Arteta's song were okay. But again, when you look at the big games where we were pressed... And in more recent times against Spurs, we haven't done great at it. And the other thing I would say is I don't think it's just a two-man issue. Playing out of the press is about creating passing lanes and intelligence and giving them lots of options and blah, blah, blah. But certainly the two most important players would have been Flamini and Ramsey. And uh, it's funny because the, after the Ramsey goal, the first thing, everybody goes up and hugs him, but Flamini gets him in a headlock. And I think mm-hmm. says. Yeah, yeah, well done, pretty boy. Now, listen, Cinderella. <laughs> Come sit back here with yeah, me for a bit. You, you got your bloody goal. And, you know, and just leading into the goal, uh, leading into the second goal, and I, I know Ramsey's view would be he needed to chase the goal, and you can't argue because both times we got a goal back. But before that, both com- times we let in the goal. And, you know, Ramsey is the – when Ramsey and Theo both go for that ball that led to the corner that – then I think leads to the Giroud flick-in. Ramsey mm-hmm. is by far the first... He is our attacking line. He's in our striker position. And you know the way you see a, a, a centre-forward coming back slowly from being offside? Whatever the play just before that, that's Ramsey who's coming back to get just about onside for him and Theo. And you can see Theo almost pushing Ramsey out of the way because it's a better ball for him, he thinks. And after all, he's the centre-forward but that's where Ramsey is. And, you know, you got to love it. But at the same time, when the ball's bouncing around and uh, for the for the second goal, I think it is, and Flamini's playing Keystone's Cops running from one guy to the other, um, it you know, Ramsey is still well ahead of the play and only gets back right side of the ball after the shot is, is off, the fir- the. Well, I guess Firmino had two. So, you know, it's it's uh, you don't want to take it out of his game, but it doesn't suit us in a press. I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't suit us in a pressing yeah. game. Um, you know, I could do a whole hour just on the midfield because I think it's so interesting how you fit these talented players like Ramsey into a, into a system that works. And I, I think we'll come back to that just briefly when we talk about Elneny because – there's a real question of whether just adding a more possession-oriented defensive midfielder, a more technical defensive midfielder, fixes that lack of, of organization and control in midfield. But we'll come to that. James, let's get to the positives here. Um, and, and there are a lot of positives, but one of the surprise positives, not just from this game but from the last couple of weeks, is Joel Campbell. What would you make of his performance? 
phenomenal. Um, I thought he was excellent. I mean, both going forward, he seems to have just grown in so much confidence. Uh, he looks a real threat now. Uh, I thought his play, the way he took the ball down for uh, Ramsey's goal was um, was absolutely exquisite. And also at a time when uh, we didn't really look in the game, and it was all, it was it was a moment of magic. And I guess you know, in in fairness to Ramsey, of course, you know, discussing sort of his perhaps lack of positional discipline with that came um, came the goal and, and the chance that he does create. So that that in itself can can turn a game in a different way. So I think it's of course worth mentioning, and I think you know it, it is of course understood with the talent of a player like Ramsey. Um, but yeah, I mean Campbell, you know he. You know, before we almost described Campbell as someone that, you know, he worked in in the team dynamic when you had a player like like Theo, productive and and Giroud, someone um, Joel was someone who's able to hold the ball up in the final third. He puts in a good shift. He's he's technically competent. Doesn't give the ball away that much. But now, I mean, you know, when you when you think of him, um, and albeit over just a sort of few games as he's growing. He looks like someone that can really make such a difference in the attacking third. Um, you know the way he's able to take on a player. He's he's got a, a decent amount of pace. You know, um, and he he provides a good combination. His his assists actually is is his eye for a pass is um, something that's I think very understated about his game. Um, and actually the effort he puts in for the team is is quite remarkable. I I don't know the, the statistics offhand, but I remember reading like. Um, the amount of tackles he committed, and um, and the, the percentage of successful tack- tackles that he uh, attempted was um, was particularly high. Um, and I think you can actually see, although we've talked about Walcott's work rate improving, I think you could see a real difference between the two over the course of that game. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you know, he's he's someone that's now. He, you know, it's it's been really tough for Joel if you think about it. The way in which he's he's been loaned out to so many different clubs, he's come to, come to Arsenal, um, and he's been so far down the pecking order. It's taken such a lo- large number of uh, dominoes to fall for him to actually it, even I mean, be it's, given it's an opportunity eerily, at all. Eerily similar to the Cochrane situation, right? I mean, there's so much similarity to it, as even Arson said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, certainly at a macro level. The, the one thing I will say that's different is just, you know, I, it, this one doesn't surprise me in the way that it surprised, I mean, it does surprise me, don't say it wrong, but not to the level of Coquelin, just because, you know, he had had a good World Cup. He did play, did play, for, he did play for his national team um, and was considered one of the sort of uh, key members of that team. And the the teams that he was going on at, out at loan to, you know, the likes of Olympiacos, etc. They weren't, you know, they weren't the Charltons of this world, the Freiburgs, etc. Um, so there was clearly something about him that, you know, allowed him to play consistently for those types of teams, and that that's why I always felt, you know, he, he seems at least suit the um, suit the framework of a of a decent of, of a decent solid number seven that, that could you know, put in a shift and. Uh, and and contribute in the worst case scenario, but nothing to this degree. Um, and I think you know, I think it really is exemplary of, of his attitude, the way in which, and you can look at, you can compare it to maybe a match of Debussy, who's of course in a very sort of different uh, part of his career. But um, you know, he ha- he's he's just put it, got his head down. He's he's worked hard and he's waited for an unlikely opportunity to arise. And with it, it's taken him a couple of you know, it's naturally it's taken him a few games to really 
develop that confidence, that self-belief in himself, and and with that has has really begun to flourish a, a, a certainly a good, if not a very good player. Um, I yeah. don't think. Uh, oh. Sorry, just cab. I I still don't think any of us necessarily believe he's he's going to be he's a world beater or like you know necessarily the absolute um, in in your first eleven when when everyone's fit. But he's he's certainly in that reckoning of of now. You know, is he in your? You know, he's certainly within that sort of top that that um, eighteen man squad and um, and very consistently. You know, with the way he's playing on the brink of of starting and being a very important member. If if we're going to look to uh, to win honours. Can I say that? Well, I mean, he, that I go, wonder go if it might actually be even better than that. I mean, if he keeps this level up, uh, he is so smart. The vision, the the angles, the triangles, you know, he was doing it with Ramsey and, and uh, Walcott this time. Last time out, it was with Bellerin. I mean, you keep that up, you start becoming very close to undroppable with, with his work rate, his defending, his tackling. He's very clever defensively, too. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying he's a starter, but, but maybe he is. And, you know, maybe well, well, he has I would more of a ceiling Paul, in him. Yeah. I, I would say that Oxley chamberlain has at least 30% more talent in him than Joel Campbell does. But Joel Campbell thinks the game and sees the pitch and works at both ends and makes better decisions with so much more regularity than Oxlade Chamberlain that it's not even close between them at the moment. And it, you know, it just goes to show you, as we've seen with players like you know J. Emmanuel Thomas, talent is at this level, obviously an indispensable part of of your career, but it is a fraction of what gets you to the heights. Um, so let's ask the I, I, question. And I can read that. I just want to quickly say on Joel that I just wonder if we're assuming he's going to regress to the Joel um, and we're underestim- underestimating his skills because the stuff he's doing at the moment is is really, really good. And that's uh, I agree with your assessment on Ox, but I'm not sure. Uh, I guess I leave open the idea that he may actually be every bit as talented as him and quite a few other players. I think... I have underestimated his abilities, and I think what he's doing is ability, is brilliance, is skill. It's just a question of, is he going through an incredibly purple patch, or can he keep doing this? Because the balls, the angles, the cuts, I mean, it's it's brilliant stuff. So anyway. Well, here's the thing. You know, unless you're Barcelona, you don't have to have every player on your pitch be Mesedos on Alexis Sanchez. You need players who see where their role is and execute their role effectively. It doesn't even have to be brilliantly. Yeah. And and Joel Campbell's doing that. I'm going to ask this question to James because I don't think I will get an objective answer from Paul. Um, <laughs> you so would. So James, let, let, I don't know. Let's say let's say Alexis is fit for Stoke, and he starts. Pick the other two for the front line. I mean, is Joel Campbell? Is he? Is it Theo that loses his place? Yes. Yes. Oh, Paul, unless I wasn't, that's why I didn't ask you. Yeah. Unless you try and make some argument that. Uh, you bring out the best in Alexi when Theo plays up top. Um, yeah, see, that would I, be my art. Yes, I'd drop Giroud, but, but let's assume that right-thinking people disagree with me. N- um, no, I mean, in the, in the current form of Giroud, I think it's impossible to drop him. Um, but I, I, I think it's far more likely for Giroud, even given his form, to be dropped with Alexi coming into the team. Just because 
as good as Joel is, I mean, I just think he he complements that that front three given his ability to add that defensive quality and you know the the early things we talked about about being effective in purely his retention of the ball and the fact that he's now added to that game in a in a whole other way in in the, the way that he impacts um, the game going forward. Is, you know, I, I think it has put him in a position whereby until Welbeck's back, he he's a player that, that has to play. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I hate to say it, but I don't disagree. I mean, let's come to Giroud really quickly. I'll stay with you just for a second, James. I mean, the first goal is an example of just being in the right place, having really quick reflexes, and you know, being hungry enough to want to get that touch and letting the ball do the work from there. The second goal is individual brilliance. And, and before I turn it over to you, I want to make this point, because it's always important, for, I think, for me when I talk about Giroud to explain what my frustrations were and where I see improvement. One of the things I've always been critical of Giroud about is I felt that he doesn't have, in the key moments, the selfishness, actually, the the confidence to take on a chance for himself. He is so commonly obsessive about setting up his teammates. And the way he received that ball um, and was sort of fortunate, it was a little bit of a ricochet. It was in a place, back to goal, in a congested area where he normally tries a flick or a layoff or plays it back to the top of the box. And he does a Cruyff turn to set himself up on his stronger left foot and curls it home. And the execution of it was brilliant. But I think the talent to execute that move has always been there, but maybe not the mentality. Do you see Giroud's confidence leading to him being a more, not only, I mean, we can't say clinical because he had terrible miss, but a striker who maybe now is willing to take chances on himself more? Absolutely. I think it very much ties down to confidence because I think something we all had issues with was also his ability to step up in the big games and now very consistently against big teams, whether home or away, he is, he's producing the goods. And, um, I mean, you know, that even just takes away outside of like all the, I thought his, his work rate, his ability to win, you know, to win those knock-ons. It was, you know, it, it played an important role in the first goal for Ramsey. Um, he took a knock and had it, had a stitching and, and continued on and, you know, had a, played an excellent performance. I think, I think he is, you know, there's often the debate as to, you know, is he mentally strong or is he mentally weak or does he, is it through his mental weakness that he then allows himself to be mentally strong? That at the time, but, um, um, I don't, I think, you know, I, I think, I think he's shown a remarkable, um, level of character for, you know, he's 29 and you've seen a real trajectory over the last couple of years quite consistently in his performances. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I think you're always going to get with Giroud a player that every now and then is going to frustrate you. Um, he is going to miss that that golden opportunity that he the sitter, uh, the sitter, the I mean, the open goal. But, but can I just interject one thing real quick, James? In the past, when Giroud has missed a sitter, he's gone on to have games like he did in Monaco at home, right? I mean, he'd miss a sitter, it put him on tilt, and then he was done. You just you had lost him. The fact that he was able to come back from missing a sitter to score a wonder goal solo effort, that's not something we would have seen from him in years past. Oh, absolutely. No, 100% agreed. I mean, you what you'd associate with the, the with first year Giroud is something along the lines of um, as soon as he missed a chance, you know, t- took a knock, and his arms would be flailing, his body language would be awful, he'd have a little bit of a hissy fit. Um, and he feel like the world was against him, and and you could just like, see like the Zagreb game in the Champions League earlier this season. Yeah, you know, and, and 
of course, you know, the Monaco game um, yeah. is so keenly associated with him. But that being said, I mean, it's clearly something he's looked to focus on. And he had publicly talked about it. It's just in the natural elements of the game, however much you think about it, it takes time for that to become just inherent in, in your personality and your character. Um, and I think it shows a, remar- a level of intelligence that at someone of his age um, has so keenly sought to try and improve certain aspects of his game. And I think we have genuinely seen a large level of improvement from, from when he first came to the club. And it's not, he's not, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest now that he's, you know, he, he's now reached a place where he is like, he is an absolute worldly of a striker. I'm not, but I do think he is, you know, because we see him so closely, we see him all the time, we still have these associations with him, but I, I think he has reached a level whereby this craze for a striker um, is was was somewhat unfounded because I do consider him to be one of the best strikers in the league at the moment. Um, and albeit there is there is some room for improvement, I think m- most of that improvement going forward is, is probably actually, you know, in the positions around him or perhaps the combination between him and Alexi because I'm not quite convinced yet that um, that their two playing styles have necessarily um, complemented each other as well as one would um, one would hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think being among the best strikers in the league is not about occasionally scoring a worldie um, or occasionally having a hat trick. It's about consistency. And he's showing now that he can be consistent at this level um, and that he doesn't fall out of out of the reckoning the minute something goes against him. It's, it's great to see, and I hope it continues. Now, one thing that's been a feature of his career at Arsenal is uh, stretches where he's been incredibly effective, followed by stretches where he's been almost unusable. So we will see if that happens now, and hopefully he will stay in this kind of form. But, Paul, I mean, you know, one, one of the players that came in for criticism in this match was Theo Walcott. Now, obviously, if Giroud had finished his sitter, Walcott would have had an excellent assist from a very intelligent run. That didn't happen, but he did leave us a little bit exposed defensively. It was his attempt to run it out from the back that cost us the first goal. Um, is Theo now potentially at risk? I mean, he, at one point he had laid claim to the starting center forward position. Do you think going forward he's got to maybe fight to get that back now? Uh, I think he's going to have a job on his hands because I always felt that uh, Giroud was was Wenger's first choice and Theo was an alternate. Um, obviously, when Giroud was out of form, Theo was becoming the automatic first choice. But I don't think long-term uh, Wenger saw a change in tack because, I mean, Theo changes how we play so significantly. Personally, I, I kind of like it, but it does change how the manager would view so much of the team that it would be a, a huge strategic change as, a, as opposed to a tactical one. So, but I do think, you know, this was, this is Theo's window and it was a pretty mixed game. He certainly had that clangor, which cost us a goal. So, you know, huge black mark against him there. He had an assist down the other end with a little combination play with Joel Campbell, uh, which, wasn't put in the net, but it wasn't his fault. He pretty, he pretty much did put it in the net for Giroud. I do wonder about the conditions. Um, they weren't terrible all the time. There were passages of play where the ball seemed to be moving around nicely, and other times where the ball would hit like a thud. I think that was... You saw it with a, a chance where Ramsey came back post and the ball just right in the six-yard six box against Mignolet. 
the ball just never came off the ground and Ramsey's staring at it like it hit a divot. And I wonder if that wasn't why Giroud missed it so badly. I mean, it's one thing missing it. It's another thing have it come off the back of your calf and go backwards. Um, and I wonder even with Theo running it out, uh, not that it's a great excuse, but, it, you know, it, there were a lot of sl- sliding, slopping around um, all over the pitch for things that are, were kind of a bit inexplicable. And I think the conditions were pretty tough if uh, it, mm-hmm. if those guys got to talk about it. But I certainly think this is Theo's window and he's he's been kind of mixed, done some good stuff. But this was really his chance to cement a place in the front three. And Joel Campbell, for me, is the one who's really proved it. Uh, yeah, he's he's really taken the opportunity. Uh, um, but but let's be fair also. I think so much of the success of a front three is based on partnerships that work. Agreed. I think Giroud works really, really well with Ramsey in midfield, for example. I think Theo works really, really well with Alexis out wide. I mean, there, there are partnerships that work. There and, are. and the only and, reason I would not have started Joel this weekend, I mean, I would start him, but the only thing that would give me pause is uh, we haven't seen that much of it, but Theo running in behind, he's kind of, it's frustrated me a little bit. We've kind of used him more conventionally and we haven't seen like we have in, you know, four or five or six games ago when Theo was on the shoulder making those runs in behind. I mean, he hasn't been caught off side for weeks. We're not using him that way, but that would be the only reason I'd want to see him start in the front three, but I still wouldn't drop Joel right now. You know, it's interesting. When we have the control that comes with Cazorla and Coughlin in midfield and you have Alexis wide, you can play Theo up front and really take advantage of his running and let Alexis cut in from the wing and Theo can swap with him and there's a lot of good dynamics there. When you have Ramsey and Flamini in midfield, which gives you virtually no control, and Ramsey making the deepest runs, you need the control that Giroud provides in the middle. You need the focal point for Ramsey to run past. Um and I just, you know, I think Theo's future is not as a winger, but as a forward, I mean, as a center forward um, for a variety of reasons. Well, we'll see what the manager does there. Let's move on to the latter stages of the match. I still want to come to what the result means and then a little bit on El Nenny. So as far as the latter stages of the match go, James, you know, when they took Milner off and brought Benteke on, I thought to myself, we're going to have chances now on the counter. We did, didn't have clear cut chances, but we had a lot of counters that we didn't we just missed a pass. You know, there was that one pass that would have sent someone in and it wasn't played right. But what frustrated me were the substitutes. I thought they each individually played pretty poorly, but I also thought the substitution pattern invited pressure on us. And eventually, if you're lofting balls into Benteke in the box, you know, I don't think we did anything particularly wrong defending Joe Allen's goal. I think it was a byproduct of spending the last 10 minutes really camped in our own half, defending long balls to a very powerful player in the air. Um, just what did you make of how the subs performed? And would you like to have seen us maybe leave Ozil out there or, or, or do something to give us a way to relieve the pressure more in the latter stages? That's you, James. Ah, yeah, sorry. That's, that's okay. I made it. By the uh, way, by the way, that first five seconds, the best answer from you so far, keep it up. <laughs> the subs and inviting on pressure by sitting yeah, back. Yeah, what, what, what did what did you think of the performance of the subs? And and would you have um would you have liked to have seen maybe a different substitution pattern or leave Ozil out there or something so we didn't invite so much pressure late on? Um, yeah, it's a funny one because it is the major frustration people have coming out of the game. Um, 
but the straight, you know, I must say, and I, I tend to get these things very wrong, but it, they were three substitutions that I think were pretty, pretty obvious. They're pretty, um, you know, the pretty standard substitutions that Arsenal has made recently, especially given the limited lack of options available to him. Um, with Joe Campbell, you know, that's the one that I still can't decide because he always looks so tired, Joel. He looks shattered, yeah. <laughs> he, but, he, but he did look absolutely spent. Um, and so I think it made sense. Unfortunately, I don't think Gibbs in that type of game was actually the ideal player that Arsenal would have wanted to, to look towards because, of course, as much defensive solidarity as he does bring to a certain degree, you could, you know, you could see on the counter-attacks his ability to retain the ball and the ability to actually provide something um, that's somewhat penetrative and actually allows us the opportunity to, to score the fourth and, and kill the game dead is, is pretty much not there in, the, in that type of situation in the game. And I don't know, so I think it was almost, it was almost a substitution he just had to make based on on you know the fitness level of Joel and the amount of work that he put in it up until that um, minute of the game. As for Alex, I mean he had he had a very poor ten fifteen minutes. I mean there was of course the one counter attack we had Ramsey and Özil busting a gut to um, sort of head towards the penalty area in plenty of space. And you thought if he looked up or had just managed to retain the ball in that. Um, Take on he had that you know it was really goals an opportunity to to kill the game off, um, but then again you know Theo hadn't had a great game so the sub that to me at the time made sense, in hindsight didn't turn out to be an effective one but I think it was an understandable one. As for Meza, I think part of that was also you know ticking the clock down, and Arteta is you know he's not someone that he's certainly not someone that can't hold on to the ball that um, is unable to distribute the ball and I don't think. The actual goal that we conceded really had much to do with um, with that substitution in itself. I think maybe you could argue: Do you bring on a Gabriel to counter the Stephen Corker uh, the Corker substitution, which clearly indicated that they were just going to fling balls into the box, and you needed to um, to win the challenge, and if, if not, you needed to to get onto the second ball, and um, that's not necessarily what Arteta. You know, but, but for, or for that matter, Özil got taken off. Um, are going to add to your to your team? So I don't mm-hmm. know. I, th- I think it's almost, to be honest with you, a little bit of a a lazy complaint. I'm more frustrated with the way in which we defended that that last sort of five ten minute spell. Um, the way in which Ben. Well, we seem to lack composure gen- generally. I mean, it, right. it was just it was sort of a nervous a nervous defensive effort. Um, reminiscent of some things we saw seasons past. Uh, but l- let me just do this. Let me just push this ahead just real quick because I want to give Paul one quick shot at this, and then I want to talk about whether this is a good result or not. So, Paul, just quickly, you know, it's kind of an irony that Theo now being a starter and not playing well means he gets subbed off at a point in the match where you probably look at it and say Theo's a guy that could actually have been really, really effective coming on the last 15 minutes. Um, but... I mean, your your answer to James's thoughts. I mean, would you have liked to have seen us try, from a substitution perspective, not to have conceded so much territory? Well, I certainly think we conceded the initiative. Um, I don't necessarily think it was just about the subs. I mean, that's the logical place to go. 
But we actually had a period of about five minutes where we had the ball, where we were pushing up on the left wing. Gibbs was involved in a few uh, triangles, etc. Um, Arson should be able to go to his bench, waste a bit of time bringing on some subs, and bring on some fresh legs. And when you you know if you look at the goal, uh, Joe Allen's fresh legs are a yard faster than Bellerin is one of the pieces of play. Uh, Benteke, I'm not sure what you're going to do about that. Uh, Henderson hits in a good ball from somewhere where I'm not sure anybody really should have closed him down that quickly. It was a kind of a classic Stevie G moment, puke, puke. Um, but it's the initiative we lost before that. And Arson should be able to go to his bench and bring on three players who execute and... It, and, but it's not just down to those three players. I think the team focus, um, as a team, they got to go off and look at that. I don't think you can say it was right. just Gibbs. I don't think uh, Ox. You know, I went and spent that whatever fifteen minutes uh, watching what Ox did, and apart from the screw up on the counter attack, I mean, he didn't actually have that much else to do. He ran around like crazy. He blocked. He he kind of positioned himself himself. Gibbs gave the ball away a couple of times. He also did some very useful things defensively on that wing. You know, it wasn't this great catastrophe, but somehow we lost the initiative. We we didn't take control of the ball, etc. So I think it's a team failure in those last 10 or 15 minutes, and hopefully they come out of it stronger. All I yeah, look, say. the good news is, as players come back, like Alexis and now El Nenny, Instead of it being Oxlade-Chamberlain, who's really out of form right now, or a Gibbs, who is kind of a de facto, you know, a default substitute right now, you look on the bench and you may see a Theo Walcott sitting on the bench. You may see, um, you know, a Matthew Flamini sitting on the bench or ultimately an Elneny instead of a Coughlin or, you know, eventually a Cazorla. And it, it will be a case where we will have probably arguably more reliable sub options within the next four to six weeks hopefully though, though um, i would say the manager has and will in the future go to gibbs arteta yes. and and another fullback you know debushi or whoever he's got it's a classic arson move it's it wasn't wasn't really driven by a weakness of his bench i would potentially maybe he would have done something different with slightly but you know he needs to be able to go to those players and for them to perform. yeah but you know what paul eventually the performance of those players is going to dictate his trust in them. And I would argue that Oxley Chamberlain definitely and Gibbs to a lesser extent are certainly giving him pause to rethink whether he wants to use them in crucial situations. There are many who um, would agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So real quick, I'm going to give you my reason why I think this is a bad result. Um, and, and then I'll, I'll let each of you respond to it just really quickly. And then we'll just touch on El Nenny and then we'll say goodbye because Stoke is coming up and we're going to have to get ready for that. But the reason I think it's a bad result is not because I'm a doomy son of a bitch. That's a totally different issue. Um, you ordinarily you'd say a point at Anfield is always good. But here's my, here's my argument. We had three points. And here's why holding them would be so important. We still have to go to the Britannia, to Goodison, to Scheidhart Lane, to uh, Old Trafford, to the Etihad. We still have Chelsea at home. Not that, that looks as tough as it could be. We have a lot of very tough fixtures all of which are the kinds of fixtures that the cliche would be a point there is good, right? You'd say a point at Old Trafford, a point at the Etihad, a point at Goodison, a point at the Britannia is a good point. The problem is if we only take one point in all of those games, 
we're not going to win the title. So to win the title this season, I mean, unless City just totally collapses and everyone else does too, which I guess is possible, to win the title this season, we are going to have to take three points at some places where you'd ordinarily be happy with one. And Anfield is one of those games where you'd ordinarily be happy with one. But we had three, and we didn't hold it. And now that makes it even more important that we go to the Britannia, that we go to Old Trafford, that we go to Goodison and get three there. Because if we only get one from all those games, we're going to finish way behind City at the end of it. So, James, I'll start with you. Does that logic make sense, or do you still have to say in the overall context of things, we maintain our lead at the top and a point is a good result? I mean, I understand what you're saying. Um, and I do agree that given the situation we found ourselves in the 89th minute, that to a certain degree, the game did feel like a loss immediately afterwards. But I mean, the manager said the players were really disappointed, frustrated in the dressing room. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. When you concede a goal that, that laid on in the game and dropped two points, it's, uh, of course, it's disappointing. But I mean, I'm more keen to, to look at it in the sense that over the seven games in which we've had to stick with Flamini and Ramsey and whatever you might say about Flamini's qualities, I, you know, I, I don't actually think he's, he's, he's a terrible player. I think he's a, he's a very decent squad option. But I just, you know, we've been very much forced into playing that's, those two as a, as a central um, midfield pairing. And they really are, are two players that do not complement each other. And you can just look to any of Arsenal's recent press conferences and, and just how desperate he's basically been to bring in an extra central midfielder. Um, aside from, of course, the, the lack of other options we've had in that position um, with regards to substitutions, rotation, etc., etc. Um, and I think over those seven games, you'd be pretty content beforehand if someone told you five wins, a loss and a draw. Um, and in the context, and I appreciate Liverpool had some injuries as well, um, in the context of the game itself, it was... It's a decent point, and I don't actually think it's necessarily indicative of the fact that you know we'll go to the Britannia, we'll go to the Etihad, we'll go to Goodison, we'll go to White Hart Lane, we'll go to the Etihad, um, and we'll consider a point against any of those sides um, or all of those sides necessarily a good result as such. Because I, I do think, and <laughs> it's it's always a little difficult to uh, say with any um, with any great confidence with Arsenal, but. You know, going forward, there do seem to be a good number of players coming back. And when you have a player like Alexi returning, and you have the likes of um, Kazula and Coughlin certainly coming back into the, the squad at some point, I feel pretty confident that this is a squad that and a team that very much has the capability to take points at those stadiums. Um, I think, I think with a better midfield um, on on Wednesday, I think we would have won that game potentially. I think, I mean, uh, I mean obviously we're talking hypothetical six, it would have been a very different game the way it would have played out. Um, and I just have a greater confidence in this side that we can get those three points. And that may be unfounded, um, but I think given the context of the game at Anfield, I don't mind the point as much. Well. It did feel like a loss, there's no denying that. If I take a step back, if you said to me before the game, would you take a point? I probably would have. Um, and we'll come to El Nene, but you know, some of that also comes down to a bit of faith in the fact that assuming Arsene has wanted to bring him in, I'm, I'm hoping that he's a player that can add something to the squad rather than end up being the uh, quote-unquote deadwood that um, gets thrown around. So, Right. Well, we'll see. Um, uh, Paul, 
just really, really quickly, and then we'll just touch on El Nenny for you. I mean, look, I'm not saying it's a bad point, woe is me, and I'm not saying we can't get three at the other places. I'm just saying we're not going to be able to say at the end of every one of those games, well, a point there is good because no, no, we're not. that won't be good enough. So, so your, the feeling this match left you with? Like super frustrating because I would say we maybe didn't have one hand on the trophy, but we probably had three or four fingers on the trophy. At about Five eight, points clear. Yeah, at 89 yeah. minutes. I mean, that was a really big game. I don't think it's anywhere near catastrophic. I think it's fine. I think before that game, we would have settled for a draw for us and a draw for City at home to Everton. I think we would have said, of the, whatever those are, six tough fixtures, if you look at it, each one as a round, uh, round one, it, it was a small game, gain on City, uh, mm-hmm. with players coming back. So deeply frustrating. If we take the positives out of it going forward mentally, and we steal ourselves for the next time we're in that situation, it'll stand us in good stead. So mm-hmm. it, I guess it depends on what we do with that mentally going forward. We need, to be, we need to be able to defend a lead when we're one goal ahead. You would have expected You know what us, reminded me yeah. of? Yeah, just really quickly, two seasons ago when we led the league for the most days, you guys remember that, and then faded badly down the stretch. Now, granted, this was earlier in the season. I think it was a late November or maybe an early December game. We went to Goodison. I think it was at Goodison. It might have actually been home to Everton now that I think about it. And we had a chance to open up like an eight-point lead at the top, and we were winning the game, and they got a late equalizer, and the gap cut to maybe five, I want to say. And from there, it just got chipped away and chipped away, and we fell away. There are these moments where you can really put a little distance between you and the chasing pack and feel like it's your season. And while I'm not saying it's not our season, I'm saying that a win there with City dropping unexpected points and all the other results going our way for the most part, it would really have started to feel like our season. Now, to me, it's it's still totally up for grabs. And to be fair, it's only January. It would have been up for grabs anyway. But i, I got to um, say, okay. though, Elliot, quickly, it doesn't remind me. I, I see what you're saying, but it's like it might as well be two different teams. It doesn't feel like it. I know. It, we've it we've covered remind, that before. Yeah. It really does. I don't get the heebie-jeebies. Oh God, maybe it's going to. I just don't get that. I don't feel that with this team. No, and I totally get. I mean, totally different team. I'm not saying that this team's going to do what that team did. I'm just saying there are sure. these moments in seasons that feel defining. And this certainly, I think, a win. I'm not saying the draw's defining. Yeah. I'm saying a win. Yep. So I guess what I'm saying is the draw doesn't ruin our season. Yep. But the win really could have yep. been the defining moment, especially having been down, fighting back to get the lead. Um, so quick 60-second free swim for you first, James. Your thoughts on the El Nenny signing? Um, I mean, in all honesty, I don't really know very much about the player outside of the general messages coming out about him being having a, a phenomenal engine, has the ability to be both a sort of boxer box type player, but has is is more defensively inclined. On the face of it, he sounds like a player that could complement Ramsey well, and if um, if he's able to adapt quickly, and he's <laughs> he's going to have to if he's if he wants to make a big impact this season, then perhaps you know perhaps that unlocks slightly more control from our midfield, and also brings out brings out the best in a Ramsey, which. Um, you know, as much as we talk about his the kind of chaos it can bring to our midfield with him aligned with Flamini, if he if he reaches 
and I think I've talked about this before, if he does reach the 13-14 form and is alongside a player that, that suits him well and is defensively strong, his, his positional sense is good, his distribution is um, is pretty flawless, you know, that, 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 that could show promising signs, but it, he's a player that we're really just going to have to wait and see on. I don't think there's many of us that have um, much much knowledge of, of what qualities he really brings. Speak for yourself. Very, very, very <laughs> measured. Very measured. Now you want to go off the deep end, Paul? Yeah, what a pussy. I know loads about El Nenny. I've been okay. studying him for a week. And Give Arson, me your best 30 seconds. Yeah, I think Arson's been studying him for a year. I think he gives us a, lo- a load of options, and Linus had a, a thought out there, which was how, lo- how often were we likely to see Coquelin, El Nenny as the midfield pivotes, while mm-hmm. Ramsey is uh, pushed back to the wing and screaming about how it's not its preferred position. But it just t- points out the number of options we would have depending on game state, you know, needing to do something different, injuries. Uh, El Nenny buys us so much if he's the player we think he is. And Wouldn't he is. it be funny? Wouldn't it be funny if when he starts, it's El Nenny and Flamini in midfield and Ramsey is out wide? <laughs> I mean, there's a little hilarious. part of me. Hilarious. There's a little part of me that thinks that's kind of what he's there for because we Cazorla may be gone at the end of the season. I don't know anything. I'm just no, jumping to conclusions. Never. never. Uh, I think Not the again. manager needs the manager needs a Cazorla replacement more than a Cochran replacement. Anyway, let's move off that. We'll see what happens. Look, we're going to wrap it up. I want to give a quick hat tip to my occasional friend of me, but genuine great writer, uh, 7 a.m. kickoff. Um, we spar on Twitter from time to time, but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate the work he does. He wrote a great by the numbers on Ars blog. Yeah, it, well, it, it is was phenomenal. Yep. It does a great job of explaining the difference of how our midfield is operating right now versus when we had Cazorla and Coughlin, and I can't recommend it highly enough to kind of understand the impact you that's can. had. I, I can, okay, I can recommend it highly enough, and I just did. Go check it out. It's on our blog. It's by 7 a.m. kickoff. I want to thank uh, everybody for listening. So, Mom, thank you. Really appreciate it. And, James, you can find him on Twitter, at GoonerFanatic49. James, thanks again. Pleasure, as always. Pussy. Paul's on Twitter at Posing in My Pants. Paul, thank you. Pleasure. Block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Leave a Done. review on uh, on iTunes for our podcast. Just say all the nasty stuff in the comments, but make sure the review is five stars. It works brilliantly. Thanks, everyone. We're going to batter Stoke at the Britannia this weekend, and we'll be back at our regular scheduled time then. Cheers. Cheers.